Uh, good afternoon and welcome along into the programme. It's myself, Richie Allen, with you live from Salford. It's five o'clock here in the UK. Thanks, as always, for finding the programme. I've got some very interesting guests and talking points coming your way this Wednesday, the 9th of August, 2023. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, as the journalist Sally Beck, no stranger to these shores, excellent writer, has written a very important article for the conservative woman. It's a headed backlash grows against school transgender agenda. Now, the Bad Law Project and the Reclaim Party are taking on schools, okay, and claiming that schools are doing real harm to children and that sexual child exploitation and child indoctrination is happening in schools. I'll be joined by Sally Beck and also by Dr. Anna Sutfi. Anna is a human rights lawyer and head of legal at the Bad Law Project. Uh, So Sally and Anna will be on the programme a bit later on uh, second hour. Before that, Tony Gosling, broadcaster, former BBC journalist. Tony will be on the programme live from Bristol and we're going to run down some of the bigger, more important news stories of the day. Yes, I had a chat this afternoon with uh, Dr Anna Sutfi, really interesting lady, human rights lawyer, head of legal at the Bad Law Project. Why can I not say that? There's a Bad Law Project. Yes, yeah, very important. And um, she has described the personal, social, health and economic education uh, curriculum known as PSHE. Dr. Lutfi has described it as child abuse, mental, physical and sexual child exploitation. So we'll get into that. We'll delve down into that in the second hour. As always, I'd like to hear from you during the programme. Reach out to me via the app, message me directly via the app, or leave a comment on richieallen.co.uk where it says comment live. Busy programme then. And one of the things Tony and I will be talking about briefly is news as reported by The Times that the US technology billionaire bloke called Larry Ellison is... Um, bankrolling Tony Blair's plan to create a vaccination database in Africa. This is interesting. This guy founded Oracle, one of the world's largest software companies, and he's become one of the biggest donors to the Tony Blair Foundation. So we'll get into that. I did post to my website about that today. So there's plenty, as usual, to talk about. We're never short of a, of a topic or two. I hope you're well. Another nice-ish day here today. Funny we've been talking a little, just a little, a smidgen on this programme recently about COVID and lockdowns. And I opined, and it's only a theory, that's all it is, because I don't know, but it's just a theory, didn't didn't I? I opined that they wouldn't try that again, at least not for a few years. That's what I think, you know, the eggs will be in the climate change basket, in terms of taking more and more power away from people to go where they want and to you know, to be with who they choose, to spend as they feel like spending. It'll be climate, I reckon, but I could be wrong. But some people do not want to let go. As the journalist Chris Bambury 
was on the Jeremy Vine television programme on Channel 5 today. You'll hear him and the woman you will hear pipe in or chime in is the journalist Carol Malone. Listen to this guy Bambury on Jeremy Vine. Well, the fact is the pandemic's not gone away. It's interesting. The Hasn't number it? of cases yeah. are rising. We have this new variant. My general attitude to this is that preventative action is better because to spend the night in hospital is incredibly expensive. So anything which is going to help that is rather like the weight loss jab we were talking about earlier is of benefit. So... So, so he says the pandemic hasn't gone away, there's a variant, cases are on the increase, and he says people should take preventative measures, have COVID jabs and boosters, because hospital stays are very expensive. And we did talk quite a bit about this through 2020. We speculated about some projected point in the future, didn't we, where you might be advised if you decided not to have a jab, Whichever jab you were, were offered at that time, you might be advised, well, if you don't accept it and roll up your old sleeves there, well, you will be denied medical care in the event you come down with the thing that you might have avoided if you had the jab, right? This is speculation. Don't take this at anything other than, than face value. I don't know. But it's interesting to mention it's very, very, very expensive. They stay in hospital, have the jab. Will that in the future be turned to, if you don't have the jab, fair enough, but you won't be going to hospital, maybe. I'm a bit worried. The flu jab, less so, because it's not as effective. Flu changes so quickly, variations. But Are on, these 50% effective, which, which yeah. sounded great until we were told the COVID jab was 80% yeah. effective. The COVID, the COVID one I take more seriously. As I say, this is not yeah. going away. And you're, was, you're not it, in the it, age It could possibly say... I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> it could really possibly save money, because as I say, to spend a night in hospital in A&E... Earlier in the show, you talked about how the NHS hasn't got any money. And here you want the NHS to fork out for something I'm now. I'm saying it could save money. No, yeah, the NHS doesn't have any money, but it will always find money for the procurement of vaccines, I reckon. doesn't matter how, how desperate things are at the NHS in terms of funding... There will always be money for jabs, I reckon. What do you reckon, dear? But it's not going to, because they've got, they've got to pay for the jabs for, for injecting everybody. All the categories that Jeremy just read out there, I mean, there's very few people that aren't eligible for a COVID or a few Are you joking? Everyone's what about a healthy, strapping 58-year-old? Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I'm not. So, when I'm you saying, say there are very few people, no, it's I'm basically everyone aged 58 the, is sort of broken. The people at risk are going to get a free COVID and flu. Jab. Oh, I see. People like see. you don't need it. Well, I might and want it. And if you it. do need it, blum and pay for it. I, I might want it, says Jeremy Vine. Well, go and pay for it, says Carol Malone. There's another little chestnut in there, isn't there? A little nugget. In the very near future, We, I expect we will be asked to pay for things that traditionally were covered on the NHS because we pay our national insurance and we pay our taxes and you expect that if you're ill... There will be a doctor there for you and we pay in for many years even if we don't need to use it because by paying in we ensure that our neighbours and our fellow countrymen and women get the help if they need it. But yeah, they're just dropping little... I don't know if it's me being a bit paranoid. I might be. You know, I, I, I'm not generally... I don't tend towards paranoia. But they drop these things in, don't they? Very, very expensive to stay in hospital. Have your job. Hmm, yeah... Okay, let's uh, leave that one there, COVID. Can't believe a guy's going on the air on the 9th of August and complaining that the pandemic hasn't gone away. 
and that people need to get jabbed anyway. Horrible story off the Italian coast. The media is covering this this afternoon. Uh, 41 migrants died in a, I think, a, a boat capsized off of the Italian island of Lampedusa. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, four people survived it. They were on a boat that had set out from Tunisia and sank on its way to Italy. The four survivors were from the Ivory Coast and Guinea. It's pretty wretched, that, isn't it? Whatever you might think about the, the, uh, about the calamity that is the immigration system here in the UK, it's a terrible thing to see things like that. Some of the people who died were, were children, apparently. That's what they're telling us. Any case, it's pretty awful. I can't add to that. What what, what can you possibly say? Um, from the tragic to the ridiculous, the Welsh Government Minister Jeremy Miles has recanted a tale about the time he met Hillary Clinton. Now, I shouldn't say that. That's, that's Gerald Salente's gag, isn't it? Uh, Hillary Clinton. He found himself... When meeting Hillary Clinton at Swansea University, can anybody tell me what Hillary Clinton was doing at Swansea University? I would have imagined that Hillary Clinton was akin to Mariah Carey in terms of divaness and would say things like, um, where do you want me to go next week? I wouldn't be seen dead in Swansea. I've been to Swansea. It's quite nice, um, as a matter of fact. But she was at an event at Swansea University and Jeremy Miles sat, sat down alongside her and he thanked her for referring to LGBT rights. She'd just given a speech, you see, and she'd talked up um, LGBT rights. I don't know why. There isn't any homophobia in the UK. There isn't any homophobia in Swansea, as far as I know. Anyway, so she said some nice things about LGBT rights, and he said to her that um, he was the first openly gay cabinet minister of a government in Wales. He was delighted with himself, telling her that. Would you believe it, Mrs Clinton? I wonder, did he refer to her as um, Secretary of... No, he wouldn't have done. So he would have said Mrs Clinton, presumably. I'm the first openly gay cabinet minister of a government in Wales. Sounds like an episode of Little Britain. I'm the only gay in this village. I can't do the accent. Don't ask me to do it. So she said to him, do you have a partner? And he said, no. I'm newly single. This is a great story, isn't it? And then Mrs. Clinton, if you please, offered to introduce um, Jeremy Miles, gay government minister, to some of her friends. And he alleges, uh, I won't mention his name, he says, but one of them was a world leader. Who could it be? I didn't say yes. I thought that would be a step too far, says Jeremy. Yeah, right. He says it was a long way from his days as a teenager at a comprehensive school in the Swansea Valleys, where he says he went to bed wishing he would wake up and not be gay. All together now? Oh. A gay world leader. Who do we think it is? Leo Varadkar? When Leo was single, maybe? Did she try to set the Welsh minister up with the Merry Indian in Dublin? Did she? Well, they'd have made a great lamb curry together, wouldn't they? Boom, boom. Anyway, let's leave that one alone. Now, just in case it's escaped your attention, it's warm right now. It's warm in the UK. It's muggy. It's humid. And it's muggy and humid in the evenings. Keep that in mind. You go to bed, right? I go to bed at 10 o'clock usually because I'm the most boring old bastard that ever lived. I get up at 
4.30, This is why I go to bed early. And it is warm and humid because it's the summertime. And in Portugal, it's warm and humid too. It is the summer. Now, Katia Bruno is a freelance writer based in Lisbon. That's what she is. And that's fine. That's a good thing. I mean, Sally Beck will be on later on. Sally has worked for lots of publications. These days she's freelance and she's pretty brilliant. So there's nothing wrong with being freelance. I'm freelance-like, right? But this woman, I'm, I'm emphasising this because she doesn't have a scientific qualification. She's a writer with an opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. But Times Radio let her loose this morning to talk about climate change and never made it clear that she isn't a scientist. And basically Katia just describes the summer. You know, talking about how the climate is changing, she just describes the summer in Portugal. And I I thought it was slightly, mildly amusing. I think we have been noticing it uh, as each summer goes by that it, it's getting uh, warmer and warmer. Um, and it, it is kind of getting to a place where um, I think there, there it is inex- inescapable. I, I think that everyone... Um, if it's inescapable, they might just leave us alone. What do you reckon? I've, we've said this many times. Let's hear a bit more. It's starting to realize that the the global heat, the global warming uh, crisis is is real. There is no no turnaround around it because people feel it um, in their day to day. In and and I think the new generations are quite uh, worried. I think that is a topic that. Um, for younger people, uh, particularly... That's because Greta Thunberg is scared the bejesus out of them. And they're having the bejesus scared out of them in school as well. Not just in school, but in high school and even at uni. They're being horrified, really, aren't they? It's a form of psychological torture. Maybe that's a real exaggeration, maybe. But they are terrified of it, of course, because they hear it everywhere they go. That There won't be much of a planet for them in their old age if we don't stop them living effectively. So yes, of course they're scared. In their early 20s is something that worries them deeply. And um, Some of them are even saying they, they don't plan to have children to save the planet. It is not, I think it is starting to reach to uh, older generations that uh, global warming is not just something that um, is a, a distant scenario that people talk about, but they don't really see it. Um, they are now... Um, catching the those real effects uh, in their day-to-day lives because um the the su- summers are are um when i worked in the legacy media i'd have just cut her off i mean this is boring and rambling and this, there's no expertise here this is just a woman in lisbon saying that we can feel the effects of climate change because it's pretty warm at the moment it, incredibly uh getting hotter and hotter yeah. and uh the day-to-day basis is now um something that is truly felt something that is truly felt most people don't have air conditioning in their apartments um most people don't have air conditioning in their apartments she said um i've looked into this uh if you use a search engine and you key in um portugal uh air air conditioning in portugal and then key in air conditioning in lisbon in a separate search it claims that most modern buildings and domestic dwellings do indeed have an air conditioning unit. He should have challenged that, the Times radio guy. He should have said, what? 
in Lisbon in a built-up city where it gets very, very warm, even if the sun isn't shining in August. You're telling me that most people don't have aircon, really? But um, I'm not saying she's lying, she's just wrong. Because even though summers were hot, during the, the night, temperatures would, would cool off. And what we have been feeling is that um, the evenings and the nights are getting um extremely hot. No, this isn't true. She says summers used to be warm, but things would cool off in the evening. Look, anybody who went to Spain in the 70s, 80s or 90s, or Portugal, anybody who lived in Spain, as I did for over eight years, the temperatures do not drop off and it doesn't get cool in the height of summer. It doesn't. It becomes unbearable. And that is why you have your aircon unit and you turn it on. And, you know, you cross your fingers that you don't have to do it too often because it's very expensive, right? This is mad stuff. And they're just letting this go on, these presenters. Uh, it's not just something that you feel during yeah. uh, lunchtime where you just don't go outside during that time. Now, even when you go to bed, um, and, and, and experts, health experts say that is also a problem because... Um, the famous experts. Body can't really... Uh, cool down and and kind of uh, get better from the heat that was felt during the day. The body cannot cool down and get better from the heat that was felt during the day. Um, the, yes, as the Times radio guy. The nighttime used to be a good time to get that balance and, and get hydrated. Um, and now uh, that is much harder to do. Um, by the way, the, the, the temperatures being experienced in Portugal right now are normal for this time of year. I checked it, 26 today, 31 tomorrow, 33 Friday, 32, this is Lisbon, 32 on Saturday, a drop to 28 on Sunday and 29 on Monday. It's the summer. And this description of what you can experience in the evenings, that is exactly the same in in Northern Europe. When temperatures, even in an average summer, can hover around 20 in the nighttime, which can make sleeping difficult. It's propagandistic claptrap, isn't it? It's absolute nonsense. I was going to do a story about Amazon sellers having their earnings withheld by Amazon, but that's on the website richieallen.co.uk. There's also an article on there about the Irish government making student accommodation available to refugees, providing the student accommodation has been empty for the previous 12 months. This despite the fact that 12,000 Irish people are homeless at the moment. 12,000. Yeah. And I'm the lefty. I'm the old socialist guy, not not, not not remotely right-wing, if you're new to the programme, right? Something we would have discussed back in the 80s and 90s, that immigration was crazy, unless you could provide the services that were needed for the existing population, for the indigenous population. Let's leave that. Tony Gosling will be with me in about three minutes' time. It's Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. I'm Richie Allen. Let's have some music from The Clash then. And the Magnificent Seven. It's uh, 19 minutes past the hour. Tuesday's pro. When, 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 Wednesday. Uh, the 9th of August, of course it is. Thanks for joining me. It's always great to be with you. Music from The Clash, The Magnificent Seven. 21 and a half minutes it is past the hour. Let's welcome back to the programme a very good friend of mine, We've been speaking on the radio since my days in Spain, would you believe that? He presents the Not the BCFM Politics show, Bristol Fridays. It's excellent. Thisweek.org.uk website. Check out Bilderberg.org as well. Former BBC journalist. Welcome back, Tony Gosling. How are you? 
Uh, very well, Richie. How are you? I'm great, pal. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. I always love chatting with you. I know you gave a speech recently, not far from Downing Street, to um, to a group concerned with the activities of NATO. I really want to get into that in a few minutes because it's fascinating right now. But let's kick off with something that I read in the Times today. A story about Larry Ellison, a tech billionaire who founded Oracle. And he's giving tens of millions of pounds to the Tony Blair Foundation to create a vaccination database in Africa and also to create a kind of a health security initiative in Africa. How dystopian does health security um, sound? Now, you said to me today, before you come in and I get out of your way for a minute, that um, don't get overly excited about that. You didn't think the Africans would have too much of an appetite for Tony Blair. Go ahead. No. And and uh, what's this guy's name again? Sorry. Uh, Larry Ellison. Right. Larry Ellison. If I mean, I did look him up uh, after I spoke to you. And uh, you, I mean, he's basically a kind of Gates character. So these people were recruited, many of them in the 1970s and 80s, on this. Uh, well, I mean, the idea really was to make sure that the computers and the software that was being used on them were all controlled. Well, I mean, I think I can say this on your show by the Nazis. Now, I mean, you know, obviously Gates is really uh, a CIA person. I mean, the idea was an NSA. The idea was that as Microsoft was to grow Windows, everyone was going, wow, isn't this amazing? Put it all on PCs. That the American National Security Agency was going to have a backdoor into everything. And I think we heard from Edward Snowden quite a lot about that because the idea is to put the entire world under surveillance. Now, Oracle was always was one of the earlier programming languages. And I mean, I'm not sure if this is the same Oracle, but if it is, this guy is, you know, he's on the level of Gates. So he was one of the people who was recruited very early on to make sure that all this stuff was their stuff, everything that was being used. And the intention was all over the world. So the Chinese, the Russians, the Africans, the Australians, everyone was going to be using this because the Americans were way ahead of the game. That's That was the plan. Now, of course, since then, we've seen the Chinese and the Russians particularly developing all sorts of software of their own. And, and in fact, they started off uh, with things like Yandex, which is based on Google Chrome. Uh, in in more recent years, in the last 20 years or so, um, making out that they were kind of going to go along with it all. Uh, in the meantime, of course, the Russians are, are building uh, weapons and developing weapons to fight the Americans and beat them. Uh, so I think that that's the significance of who it is that's doing this. Tell me this now. Tell me this, this very quickly. Tell me this. Where's the evidence that Bill Gates or Larry Ellison or any of these tech people? I've heard this accusation thrown at Elon Musk too. People say, not not you. I'm not saying you're lazy. Not for a minute. But you know the truther types. It's a lazy accusation. Is there any hard evidence that Bill Gates is a is a CIA controlled asset or or anything like that? Because I've never well, seen I, it. I think you look at look at the early days of Gates and where he got all of his you know original contracts and money to go and develop this stuff and where he got his mission to develop Windows. I mean, it wasn't just that this guy has decided that this is a, a cool thing to do and he's done it all on his own. No, he had the backing of the American secret state to do this. Uh, I mean, the, I, I, I can't pin down a specific thing, but I've read it in several, you know, several different good, credible places that, that, that that's what the, the Microsoft was tied to the secret state right from the start. 
and the idea of you know developing this i mean okay so you go back to something like 9-11 this is how important this stuff is uh, on the day of 9-11 the uh, the the operators of the air traffic control in the states and NORAD, the air defence system, was saying, well, hang on, is this is this real world or is this an exercise? Because things were appearing on their screens that shouldn't be there and weren't there. But that's because the other side had access in through the operating systems into all of their software. And that's why Gates did what he did, because he wanted to make sure that the operating systems all over the world were accessible backdoors accessible by the powers that be so you know if you connect up to the internet with one of these computers the internet is going to be connecting up to you and it can make things appear on your screen i remember in the early days of the internet i used to see all sorts of weird messages suddenly flash up when my computer was connected to the internet and uh, it, it, hard evidence i can't give you right now but I, I think you know anyone that really looks into this will will find that gates and oracle microsoft oracle these original um, software companies in the States were always designed to lead the way in uh, personal computers and also to uh, provide uh, a way in for, you know, in a way into that for the National Security Agency. You said that um, b before we talk about NATO and we'll talk a bit about Ukraine, undoubtedly, you said, um, just to go back to Blair for a minute, you said that um, he he's not going to go down too well in Africa and any plan no. that he has to create a database there might be scuppered by that very fact. But but I, I don't get that. This seems to be the prevailing wind, doesn't it? Not just for Africa, mm. but for everywhere, for every country well, in the world. Yeah, but the thing is, if you look at the African states, they're now starting to realise that there may be an alternative to just AFRICOM. I mean, I don't know if how much you know about AFRICOM, but it is the American military's command centre for Africa, for Africa and yeah. it's based in Stuttgart. And the Americans have got this thing called, and your listeners can look it up, called the Unified Command Structure, where they've just divided the entire planet up to, into commands. And Stuttgart in Germany is where the Americans run Africa from. So this is the arrogance of the Yanks, that they think that the whole world is theirs and that they've got a military command for each one. Of course, they talk about, you know, humanitarian missions that they do. Well, that's a very, very small part of it. So I think... The, the African countries are now realised. I mean, with this coup in Niger is, I think, a case in point, is that the French have just been, you know, NATO has been booted out of Niger that after, is it 150 years of the French being there? We've now got um, NATO in the form of the French being told no and getting their marching orders. So these countries have got a little bit of independence. They haven't got much wriggle room, but they do realise that if they do a deal with one of the big superpowers, um, that maybe that, um, you know, it might be that the Americans kick back. They might send a whole load of mercenaries in there to create havoc. Uh, as they've been doing uh, in, uh, oh gosh, isn't it, in, uh, in Syria, Sudan, isn't it? And That's Syria. right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and also, of course, in Ethiopia, similar tactics. So, you know, they, they say, well, if you're not going to deal with us, we're just going to we'll send the, the maniacs in. Um, so I think there is a little bit of independent, you know, possibility for African countries to be independent if they start doing deals with each I mean, Port Sudan was really important because the, at the Port Sudan, the uh, the Chinese had been doing, or maybe it was the Russians, I can't remember which, but anyway, one of them had been doing deals with the government to have a naval base there. And at which point, you know, the the, the um, rapid reaction forces, which are funded from, um, from one of the Gulf states, I think it's UAE, by the West, of course, 
uh, st- start killing people in you know in Mogadishu, and and so this is the way it's this is the way geopolitics really works. If you're not going to play ball with us, we will just turn your country into a nightmare, and that's all the Americans seem to be able to do now. But look, I don't want to leave the Blair thing because this whole business of uh, you know the Tony Blair Satanic Research Institute, whatever. It, what's it called? I can't remember now. Yeah, the Tony Blair Foundation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Them. Uh, this database that they're creating in Africa. Look. I mean, it's. Uh, if, if I'm sure you're familiar with Edwin Black's work and the IBM and the Holocaust. Now, this was the original databases which were being created in the 1930s by IBM and the Nazis to put everybody in Germany under surveillance. Of course, they were doing it in other parts of the world too. But it was in Germany that it became so horrific where all these bits of bits of uh, bits and pieces on people's profiles could be selected at will whether it's age religion uh whatever kind of um you know things that they had on their database uh, they could be people could be selected town by town for elimination arrest and all this sort of thing so this is the danger of these databases is that and, it, and which is why i think i don't think you know, anybody should have to be on any kind of a database to be, you know, for example, they're trying to bring people into um, these uh, universal basic income. You know, this is this is you and the database. And if the database says no, you don't get any money. Yeah, they so, want to centralise the, they want to centralise the medical records of everybody in every country so that they are it, accessible instantaneously. But why, sh- why should they not do that? Now, well, let's have a look at the track record in Africa. Uh, in Pfizer, I think it was in 2010 or 2012, there was a horrific scandal with their meningitis vaccine. Uh, that that Pfizer took in there. And they had set aside 30% of their budget, tens of millions of pounds budget for this research program that Pfizer had for bribing and possibly assassinating police and judges and politicians. So that's the attitude that the vaccination companies have had in Africa. And of course, many of the Africans know this. So they think, well, if Pfizer turns up on your doorstep, what that really means is they just want to bribe some politicians, you know, in a similar way to the Pakistani politicians have been bribed to impeach and now yeah, arrest. But, but Tony, hang on a second. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Pfizer, um, global pharma, pharmacological giant or pharmaceutical giant, there's no paper trail to suggest that the bosses of Pfizer said, let's make some money available to off um, some, some politicians to, to kill uh, some police if they oppose our plans to roll out our jabs. I mean, is there well, any it's evidence? Mainly, it was mainly for bribery. There is evidence. And it's this is out. If people want to go and search for it, I think The Guardian had a good article about it. There, there definitely was. And this was all exposed by the Nigerian government. Assassinations that, um, and stuff. like So Pfizer were actually making money available to kill any to kill certain people if those people well i don't think i don't think they officially said kill but some police were killed but what they would the money was there for for bribery purposes of judges and politicians and the idea was if any kind of prosecution started to emerge they would just Pfizer would just turn up with a whole load of dollars you know cash and say look let's just make this go away you know so yeah uh, and they didn't and Pfizer actually managed to get prosecuted over in nigeria because the nigerian um you know some people in the judiciary and the and the, and the government actually stood up to them so that's how the scandal came out but this is i think the sort of thing that that, that yeah. your tony blair money is going into and then of course anyone i mean if, if anybody listening hasn't seen the documentary cold case hammershold which uh, I was very privileged to speak to the producer who was uh, working for Swedish state television. I did an interview with him about the documentary. And this is about the the, uh, assassination of the UN Secretary General. I think it was in 1961, Dag Hammarskjöld. 
Uh, and it was the documentary was made by the Swedes, but fronted by a Danish investigative journalist. And in Cold Case Hammershold, this was shown on the BBC late one night in 20, late in 2019. And I was sitting there with my eyes out on stalks. It's, I think, two hours long. But what it does, what it shows is not only was uh, the uh, Belgian and, and English and British mining firms responsible for bribing this organisation called CIMAR, uh, which was a far-right right, white supremacist South African private army to assassinate Hammarskjöld because they didn't want the, um, you know, they, 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 they had their own little battle going on because they were fighting governments uh, in, that, in the middle of Africa to get mining concessions. And the, the governments were saying, no, 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 we want you to pay more for this. And, and they, were, they were fighting the governments over that. And uh, Hammarskjöld went down there, flew down there to try and sort things out. He was a very much a hands-on Secretary General of the UN, and um, and so these these European mining companies and Simon collaborated to assassinate the guy. But in the background to all of this, as as uh, this brilliant investigative journalist dug into, it was a bit like a kind of really old, you know, full-on old-school world in action style documentary. Uh, as they dug into the story, they they realised that they, were, they actually managed to speak to one of the Simon guys who'd retired, who really wanted to just talk about it all because it had all been so horrific. Uh, and, and he actually admitted, and he said, well, one of the things that we were doing was deliberately injecting Africans uh, in, 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 I think it was in Mozambique, with, with, uh, with the AIDS virus and saying it was a vaccination. So... So if you think you can trust the West and any normal, you know, thinking Africans think they can trust the West with some kind of vaccination program in Africa. So they were actually uh, they were actually, you know, tr trying out AIDS by injecting it into these people, saying you're, you're going to get an AIDS yeah. vaccine. They weren't at all. I've and read they were, this. by the way, they were white supremacists. Hang on and a this, second. I would like to see Black Lives Matter take this one up, you know, because I haven't heard anything from them. It, it, they might not uh, be aware so, of it, yeah. You know, many, many thinking Africans would never trust any Western company or particularly a Tony Blair. Well, hang Tony on a second. Hang on a second. There's, there's a flip side to this, and I don't understand... Um, I don't understand your thinking here. We know that natural resources, Africa is rich in natural resources and minerals, right? We know diamonds, gas, uranium, copper, cobalt, iron. I mean, absolutely um, awash with these important minerals. And you talk about the US and maybe Western designs on Africa. And yet you give Russia and China a pass. I don't believe no, that. Let, let me finish. No, I, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. just not the case. No, but you've spoken what for four minutes. Is, Hang on. You've spoken for four minutes. Let me there, there are big superpowers that are vying for, right. for these countries. And the Americans are being slowly shut out, I think, in some of them. Yeah, and, and I, I don't understand why, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, I don't understand why anyone would make the case that the Africans would be better off with the Russians or the Chinese than they would be with the Americans. I don't share your, not support because you don't support them, you're a journalist, but I don't share your views of, of, of Russia and Vladimir Putin. To, to me, they're playing their own agendas and their own games and they're equally as deadly for the peoples of their own countries as much as they are for Africa and, and, and anywhere else where they go and colonise. It's just colonies. It's colonisation by other countries, isn't it? 
if you go on to my uh, thisweek.org.uk, my, my last week's program, we had a really good discussion about the coup in Niger, and uh, and you'll see there the BBC have even got an article, Richie, saying how actually many Africans think that it's better to get the French out and the Russians in, that, the, that, it's, that it's much easier for them, and they feel a lot safer and they trust the Russians a lot more than they do the NATO. That country. doesn't mean they're right. Though. So that's the BBC. That's an article, a BBC article about the Niger coup, explaining why and how. So many people in Niger have said, well, look, you know, we, we've we've had enough of the Americans. We have found the Russians much straighter dealers than them. And so yeah. we're going to deal with them. We'll see how it goes. But it's certainly 25 years that they've been having probably more of aid from France, for example. And they've had no uh, development, you know, no actual development. So let's try and see how we get on with the you Russians. You won't get me defending the British, the French, the US, the Israeli, the Irish governments. But I, I, I think it's fanciful. If Africans believe they'll get a better deal with Russia or with China, I don't believe that. But that's yes. just my opinion. It doesn't mean I'm right. Tony Gosling is our guest now. You before gave a, we leave Blair, sorry, before we leave Blair, before we, leave Blair we must yeah. say something about how he is running Starmer. Uh, because I, I, I came across this the other week, which is amazing. When Starmer released his his uh, energy policy, well, of course, energy is one of the major, major things that any party is going to be talking about. Uh, half an hour before before Starmer started speaking, the policy was released on the Tony Blair Foundation website. Uh, so this is where things are going. You know, we've got rid of Blair. No, we haven't. No, he's still there. Uh, and he and his chums uh, are actually drawing up all the... And Mandelson, of course, is very much working with this in the background. And, you know, really, in many ways, Starmer is a creature of Mandelson. But get this. I mean, I don't know if you caught this yet last week, I think it was, about the Trilateral Commission. Oh, yeah. Uh, that I th it, was, I, it was either Declassified UK or The Grey Zone, two excellent websites. Uh, Matt Kennard, I think, did the, a brilliant article about how uh, how Starmer had secretly joined the Trilateral Commission while he was in Tony Blair's cabinet. Now, he's not allowed to do that. He has to declare uh, all of his interests as a member of the Shadow Cabinet to the Labour Party and to Corbyn. Uh, but he, no, no, no. He just, I think he was Brexit, uh, shadow Brexit minister or something at the time. But he, uh, that was when he joined the Trilateral Commission. Now, two ex-bosses of the CIA are on the Trilateral Commission, yeah. the current one. I've got and it here. It's so there's, there is Keir Starmer. He's Very basically good. CIA. That's what he is. Well done. I've got it here. It's on declassifieduk.org. The photograph yeah. is there. The information is there. Well done. Absolutely. He should not be. That should be declared. Now, um, sometime between 2017 and 2018. The Labour CIA party. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, and, and I spoke last week to Chris, Crispin, oh gosh, I can't remember his second name. But anyway, the guy that does the Not the Andrew Marshall, show, I know we should talk about our competing programmes, yeah. but he's pretty good on a Sunday morning every week. And he made a, a very, very strong case for saying, actually, voting uh, in next year's general election, and he's, a long he's one of the longest running um, fundraisers for the Labour Party during the Corbyn era, did loads and loads of gigs and stuff to raise money. And then all that money, of course, went in a, in a court case action, which Starmer just caved in. He said, oh, you know, well, yes, all this anti-Semitism, we'll just give all these people who are accusing us of anti-Semitism loads and loads of cash out of court. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's really, you know, that's what we're dealing with with, with Starmer. I just think the guys, what's anyway, what Crispin was telling me is saying, look, I mean, all if, from his experience, it'd be far worse. We're going to get a fascist-style Labour government if Starmer gets in, because there's no free speech in the Labour Party now whatsoever. Everything. No, just look at Rosie Duffield. Look at Rosie Duffield. Where Are you at Le Mans 24-hour race or something? I don't know what's going on. There's a drag race going on behind you. Tony Gosling well, is our some, guest. Some guy in a motorbike. 
Well, he's just enjoying himself. Listen, I, 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 I live in Salford. This is par for the course. You spoke at a really interesting meeting uh, a few days ago. No to NATO. You were um, near Whitehall, near Downing Street. And you were talking to me about this this morning and talking about one or two facts that you know, people might or might not know, dates that are important when it comes to NATO and the expansion of NATO uh, further and further east. And of course, that's all too relevant right now with what is happening in Ukraine. Tell us about that no to NATO group and why people should be paying attention more than ever before to NATO, what it is and what it does. Well, that's right. It's it's. Um, it, I think it was originally Chris Williamson, the former Labour MP, and George Galloway that got together to start this because they were so pissed off with the Stop the War Coalition and the way that they're and they're, at the top of their uh, website they were saying the Russians have got to get out of the Donbass. And this is you know this is after the Minsk Agreement where they actually agreed yes the Russians can stay there so long as the Ukrainians aren't shelling uh, south the southeast the Russian speaking parts of Ukraine. So the, the Stop the War people, of course, are never going to stop this war. You know, they've got loads of people out on the streets uh, for the Iraq war, but there's no way they're, gonna, they're even, it seems, interested in stopping uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, so my I, what I'd pose is this question is, what is NATO? And did a little bit of a uh, look at history. And up until 1980, we had a whole load, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, senior NATO people, that is people at the top, like chairman of the military committee, all these kinds of characters at the very top of NATO, who were ex-Nazi uh, officers. So people who've been fighting the Russians suddenly become the top of NATO. And the most important probably is Reinhard Galen, who was the head of the uh, the Nazis' secret service on the Eastern Front. And he then became the boss of the new German secret service, the BND. So, you know, the, the Russians are looking at all this, the Soviet Union are looking at all this, saying, well, hang on a minute, you've just, just taken all these people on who we were fighting just like three or four years ago. And they were looking, being very, very suspicious about it all, uh, quite rightly. And then I, I, I talked a little bit about the foundation of Bilderberg in 1954. I'm actually, this is just a compressed version. And in 54, I think it's a really imp- a significant because the first Bilderberg meeting in, in Holland took place to form together the organization which was going to meet quite secretly really private they call it i call it secret in order to be the political lobby of nato so to make sure that nato got its own way in political leaders right across europe uh, and that was chaired for the first 20 years by prince bernhard of the netherlands who was a former ss officer so you're starting to see how quite a lot of nato is to do with the nazi party to do with the, the ss uh, and uh, then in 1966, a lot of people forget that uh, President de Gaulle in France booted NATO out. He That's had right. enough. That's right. He was having all sorts of trouble with uh, the Americans particularly. Um, and so all the American troops were forced to leave on point of, well, we don't really want to, we don't really want to send the French soldiers in, but uh, we're going to give you two weeks, just get on planes and leave the country. And so the Americans did exactly that rather than face the uh, French army. Um, and that went on, of course, until, well, it's not of course, but we forget when the Americans were finally um, back with the French in NATO was under Sarkozy. Uh, I think in 2013 or 2014, so nearly 50 years, NATO was booted out of France. And there was a fantastic film, The Day of the Jackal. I'm sure many of your listeners would have seen it, which was, uh, you know, in the 1970s, they really knew how to make great 
feature films and the the um the, if anyone's not seen it please watch it it's really it was it was supposed to be about one thing but it's really about the americans hatred of de gaulle for kicking nato out of france and so what it is it's a uh, an unknown kind of force which is paying some hitman to bump off the french president and uh, the, the the french security services are running around trying to get hold of this guy and they they, they well i won't tell you what happens but um they are fighting their way through to get hold of him and and then if we go on to the 1970s we've got the daily express headline on saturday the 25th of november 1972 borman is alive Borman is alive. Now, you know, the, Europe had spent 30 years thinking, where the hell is this guy? You know, we were fighting him in the in the war. He was Hitler's private secretary. He was the signatory of all the bank accounts. And he disappeared at the end of the war. And then the Daily Express, which was a Jewish journalist, Stuart Stephen, who was actually from Bristol, working up at the Daily Express in London by then. Uh, and they published photographs of Martin Borman, uh, you know, 30 years older than he was during the war, obviously, uh, in Buenos Aires, uh, taken by Ladislas Farago, who wrote a book called Aftermath. Uh, and so this was an enormous, like, you know, the Russians are looking over at this going, hang on a minute, guys. You've been looking after the the top guy in Nazi Germany who was, who was behind Hitler uh, for all this time and trying to, trying to hide him. Well, someone's found him. Uh, and so then, then, then we had the uh, publication of the various books around Borman. I mean, I've spent a lot of time looking into this, but you know, it's it is, I think, fascinating to see that although we know a lot about the United States and Operation Paperclip and the Nazis all going over to the to the states and you know Werner von Braun and all that you know, well-known. But what's not well-known is the 1944, before the end of the war deals, between Desmond Morton, who was Winston Churchill's private secretary, and Martin Bormann, who was Adolf Hitler's private secretary. And that's what my book, Traders of Arnhem, is all about. But anyway, and then we had in the 1980s, we had Operation Gladio. That is NATO killing thousands of Europeans and trying to blame it on communists. And, you know, that was really because the, it, it, places like Italy were actually going quite left wing. And Italy had a um, pro-communist prime minister who was kidnapped and assassinated by NATO fascists, all blamed on communists. So no, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, just a second. Because, yeah, Gladio, of course, happened. It it's, it's accepted it's in the public record. But um, for our listeners who are new to this, um, you know, communists being, you know, mur murders being committed um, on such a scale and it's being blamed on communists. Was, is there, again, direct evidence to the very top corridors of NATO, the ordering of, of Gladio? Is that in the public domain, that? It absolutely is, because uh, at least three countries, I think it was Belgium, Switzerland and Italy, did uh, parliamentary inquiries into all of this. I mean, you know the way it works. That the it's like in the UK, the Intelligence and Security Committee is at arm's length from the from government, and not, uh, even at arms. Well, it's certainly it's it's a, a very long arm's length, maybe a foot's length from uh, no <laughs> a leg's length from the MPs, but even at an arm's length from government. So these committees are, and and it, of course that gives them an excuse to get up to no good. And when they do, if in a decent democracy, what happens is the MPs and the and the um, the government kick in and start to do some proper research what the hell was going on there uh, in our security meetings and who was ordering what and who knew what uh, but that happened in three countries and i mean if you really want to get into that evidence for this probably the best book is Dali, danny eleganza 
uh, and his uh, his book, which is called NATO's Secret Armies. That came out, I think, around about uh, 2005, something like that. But the, the shortcut way to do it is just look at the evidence provided by the fascists that carried out the bombings. Uh, and that is that's recorded by Alan Frankovich, the American Peruvian born American film producer that made a three part series for BBC Time Watch back in 1992. Uh, and that is an amazing series of interviews of like thousand yard stare interviews. You know what I mean? With, with these guys that were involved in actually planting the bombs. And some of them were interviewed in prison by Frankovich. So there's really no doubt that the NATO intelligence services and particularly in Italy, P2, you know, the uh, uh, Propaganda Due Lodge, uh, which was uh, behind the scenes was running Italy effectively for the CIA and CIA money, American money was funding all this because they were scared that the Italians might um, be so naughty as to vote for a really left-wing government, maybe even with a coalition with the communists. If you had to sum up in a paragraph then, what because the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation purports to be a collection of countries who get together to defend their territory, their integral ah. sovereignty, right? That's what they purport to be, or it purports to be. It's what it claims to be. If you summed up in a paragraph, now you've done enough radio and written enough articles over the years, your time at the BBC, what is NATO then? Uh, in a summary, what, what is it about? What is its aim, its well, secret look, it's aim? The, the real aim is the world's biggest protection racket, isn't it? I mean, that's what it seems to me. The, the idea is that the NATO, the NATO members, that's that's what they're in it for. Uh, and if you don't join the protection racket, you're going to get into all sorts of trouble. You don't do what the protection racket says. I mean, even if you if you were a, a, a few thousand feet on a sunny day above the NATO headquarters in Brussels, you'd look down and you'd see four Zigroons, right? That's the that's the uh, that is the SSSS. That's what it looks like from above. That's the architecture that they decided they wanted uh, for their headquarters in Brussels. I mean, you couldn't make it up. And the latest stuff, really, is I suppose last week we had an announcement from the. It wasn't an announcement from the CAA. It was a uh, the Civil Aviation Authority in the UK here. It was the. ITN, I saw it first, and various other people have now covered it, leaked papers from the CAA where the Americans are now applying, uh, and of course they'll get it, they wouldn't apply if they didn't think they could get it, to be flying drones regularly out of Fairford in Gloucestershire. So that's the first time the Americans have ever been flying these drones. Uh, we know what they do with them. They won't tell anyone what they do with them, but wherever those drones fly, they're not just sitting there taking pictures of you from 60,000 feet or however high they happen to be. They have missiles on and they can target you uh, I mean Dudayev was targeted with a, with a drone which was just simply homed in on his mobile phone and blew him to pieces so this is the capability the Americans have and of course they're not going to tell anybody so if next time that's why I, was, I said it at, the, at, at uh, opposite Downing Street on Sunday at our NOTA NATO rally is next time you hear of a political dissident killed in a gas explosion a random gas explosion in their flat no this is probably just a, simply an American hellfire missile or drone uh, and what they're trying to do Richie is to just take out the human element it's not just about not risking pilots by sending drones uh, even that they don't even like having controllers anymore so they're trying to use Alex Karp's Palantir software to actually target the drones and they've got even of course as we know drone swarms 
that will think under AI and they will just go and fight wars under AI. So, you know, this, what they're trying to do is to take the human element and even that little tiny bit of conscience out of war and hand the whole thing over to computers. And this is the dark enlightenment. This is where my old mate Nick Land comes in. And he's yeah, dark there, are, there, there, are, there are people who see the geopolitical um situation uh, similarly to you they see it as you've described it right but they 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 disagree when it comes to the capability of ai i've had people on this program who do know a little bit about this they would see the word very similar as, as to you see it they would agree with you on nato and other issues like that but they they say that they're they're nowhere near capable yet um of having a an artificial intelligence program run um a military operation acting entirely autonomously and figuring things out as it goes along, making strategic decisions. There are those who say that, that we're just nowhere near that. You know, the, singu well, the well, singularity. Well, I'll say Boulder, Boulder Dash. Of course yeah. we are. Look at you saw these video games, computer games, where you, you know, you've got you've got a you know a computer to fight against in them. They, 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 it's very very simple to program these software uh, to identify targets. Number one and three. Uh, two to take those targets out right so it's very simple to do it's just it's this is why i think there was all that hoo-ha about ai back in may and june is they're saying well hang on a minute if we just switch flick the switch here these computers are uh, russian computers will start fighting american computers actually there was a report last week of the first uh, apparently the first ever uh, drone killing someone without a person involved using a uh, using computer software in libya so you can look that one up if you want uh, somebody in Libya apparently was, became the first person to die uh, because they were hit by a missile from a drone which had no human beings involved at all. The drone flew off on its own and the computer did the targeting and killing of the person. So this is why they love Ukraine. They love things like Libya and particularly Ukraine because they can try all this stuff out, Richie. And they admitted at Christmas that Palantir software is being used for all the targeting of the Russians. Now, whether it's every single piece of targeting is being done by that, but they're trying all this stuff out so they can just turn around, go off and play golf and let their computers kill Russians. Tony, we're coming up for five minutes to the top of the hour. Folks, go to thisweek.org.uk, Bilderberg.org. Um, Tony mentioned earlier on The Traders of Arnhem. It's an excellent read about Borman um, and everything we've been discussing today. I recommend, I strongly recommend you get it. Hey, listen, on that, just before we go, because I've got to move on, um, hundreds of, of sellers on Amazon have contacted the BBC. Many of them have contacted their MPs to say that Amazon is withholding funds when people make sales. And it's got so bad for some people that they're going out of business. Have you experienced any of that, Tony? Well, I, listen, I got uh, booted out by Amazon two and a half years ago, maybe even three now, because they said that uh, someone was spoofing my account and I needed to prove who I was by sending my birth certificate and my passport to them. And in which case, I just I just hit click, you know, close account. And you know? gone. Because, uh, yeah, but I mean, they use all sorts of ways. What they're doing, of course, is they're trying to force everyone to use things like eBay, uh, you know, all those various things, etc. get you dependent on them, and then they just switch them off, you know, or bully you through them somehow. And say, so, you know, that's, that's the problem that we've got, is that there isn't anywhere near enough competition uh, in the area of, of online sales. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds exactly the sort of thing Amazon would do. Uh, and, of course, they can they can do what they want, really. I mean, they can use their secret algorithms to say, well, we've got a whole 
contingent of and profile some of their users and say actually we've decided that we don't like the British people we don't don't like the British users so we can you know just give them a whole load of extra ho uh, hoops to jump through before they're allowed to sell or buy anything and also that they can still send the stuff out uh, sell it and sell it and sell it but we will just hold back the money I mean that's just a business decision and they may decide that they want uh, you know they're in a very very powerful position now aren't they and that's that is part of this dark enlightenment enlightenment Nick Land's dark enlightenment is the computers will be in charge and actually what they've done is they've realized that through things like stock, stock, stock trading software that computers they you know some people believe and are investing in this the banksters are investing in it the computers can run the world a hell of a lot better than anyone else for them uh, and the rest of us will become superfluous. And governments, of course, are all in debt. They're way behind the curve. They're not legislating on this. Uh, and people like Amazon are way ahead of the game, Richie. Great to have you on, pal. As always, we'll speak in September. Tony Gosling, thanks, mate. Have a great rest of your summer. Tony Gosling, live on Wednesday's Richie Allen Show, thisweek.org.uk. Go to Bilderberg.org and do uh, pick up a copy of The Traders of Ireland. It's an outstanding read. I can't recommend it highly enough. Our pal Tony Gosling on Wednesday's programme. Thanks to Tony. Right, um, lots happening. Um... Uh, lots of your comments um, hundreds of comments have come in during that uh, I'll read a few of them in a moment and then we'll be speaking to uh, Dr Anna Sutphi and to Sally Beck we're going to be talking about trans what what uh, an article Sally has written in The Conservative Woman an article posted yesterday it's an outstanding read and very important and we're going to talk about what um, the Bad Law Project and the Reclaim Party are doing to take on this teaching in schools this harmful teaching um, of um well, unsuitable material for very young children. We'll get into all of that with uh, Sally and Anna right soon. I'm going to take a tune in the meantime then. While well, we organise all of that, Wednesday's programme. And it feels kind of fast-paced today. We're fast approaching a minute to six o'clock here in the UK, that is. This is uh, Bruce and That's Life back in about three and a half minutes then. Music from Bruce Springsteen and that's life. It's uh, three minutes past six on Wednesday, the 9th, so it is, of August. And uh, you're listening to The Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Great to have you on board. Thanks for all of your comments on my conversation with Tony. I really appreciate those. Steve reckons NATO is the Fourth Reich's new world army. Thank you for that, Steve. Chris was in touch to say mass peaceful non-compliance is the only way forward in my opinion, thank you for that, Chris. Uh, Backbeat says, For all those who doubt that Africans and other people, ironically, of colour, are being targeted and have been for generations, search the Tuskegee experiment. Thanks so much uh, for that, Backbeat. I appreciate that. Timothy says, Richie, Putin wrote off, that's Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, $23 billion of debt in Africa last week. Did anybody hear about this in the mainstream news? And he sent a link to that. It's a rumble link, but I can't share it uh, at the moment. Thanks for that, uh, Timothy. Good stuff. You see, we get the other side of it. Nothing wrong with it. Alexandra says that she's seen a great documentary about Bill Gates entitled Who is Bill Gates? It's a documentary uh, put out there by James Corbett, she says, in 2020. Thanks for that, um, Alexandra. Um, I, I put it to Tony, you know, you hear these things all the time, CIA assets, but where's the hard evidence, you see? You know, 
Um, I'm not particularly having a go at Tony. I, I mean, I put it to Tony. Tony's a great researcher and he's an ethical journalist. But where's the evidence that Gates or or, or, or others are in fact CIA um, assets? Hi to Akita. Thanks so much for your message, Grace Ann. Good, good. Hi, Grace Ann. Are you well? Um, Pete says, instead of heat pumps, would air conditioning be cheaper if they got rid of the gas central heating? Just asking. That's Pete. Like I said, hundreds of comments came in uh, during the first hour of the programme, but um, I'm not going to get a chance to read all of them because I need to move on fairly swiftly. Okay. Uh, You will be opining on this, and I will pause when chatting with um, Sally and Anna just to read some of your comments when they come in. I will pause. Uh, I promise you that. Sally has written an excellent article in The Conservative Woman. That's um, the journalist Sally Becky. You know Sally from coming on the programme. It's entitled Backlash Grows Against School Transgender Agenda. And she references, of course, Miriam Cates, the Conservative Party MP, who's been a lone voice in her party asking why is it taboo, for example, to assert that only women can give birth or that every single cell in our bodies contain our sex chromosomes and until uh, the end of time. And the Bad Law Project, this is all in Sally's article, they basically commissioned a poll and found, alongside the Reclaim Party, it was a joint initiative, that 55% of 2,064 parents who have been interviewed they felt that school was not the right environment to discuss irreversible, life-changing transgender uh, decisions. These are really important issues, right? And the d- debate, if there is such a thing, I don't think there is a debate, really. Um, I don't think there is. I think there's a lot of shouting and screaming and threatening going on on social media. In fact, I discussed this with one of our guests today. Where's the real debate around this issue? Now, Dr. Anna Lutfi is the head of legal at the Black, excuse me, the Bad Law Project. And she's been talking about the relationship and sex education curriculum in schools. She reckons it might be illegal. And she reckons that um, her organisation will launch legal proceedings against the Department for Education for failing to protect children. This is very important. Let's welcome to the programme uh, the author of the article, Sally Beck, and the head of legal at the Bad Law Project, Dr. Anna Lutfi. Ladies, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us, Richie. It's great to have you. Great. Hello. How are you doing, Anna and, and Sally? Great to have you both. I wanted to start off before we get into the article. And Sally, you're doing a kind of a co-presenting thing with me today because I know there are things you'd like to uh, to ask Anna. But um, I was taken by an article which I read in the Times today. I think the Telegraph covered it as well. And it's Mary Black of the Scottish National Party who gets an an awful amount of stick online. Some of it is very unpalatable. Uh, I think she's she's leaving her role uh, as an SNP. But she has basically likened gender-critical commentators to white supremacists, saying that they are no better than white supremacist racists. Um, what do you make of that? Who wants to come in first on that? Oh, well, my I'm gosh. happy to... Uh, to... Sorry, go, go on, Yeah, Anna. sorry. This is going to be a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to do my job for a change. So, so we'll start with Anna. Anna, what do you reckon to what Mary Black said today? So, so if, I, if I understood uh, what you just said, that uh, Mary Black said that people were racist if they, if they were critical of 
of, of transgender ideology is that is that the gist of it or uh, how, you, how did you phrase it yeah she she says i think I, i'll read a quote from her i think you will find statistics show that if you have more bane people crime goes up or whatever it is we, we now rightly look back on that and we say you were a racist. So in the past, if people said things like, if you have more black, Asian and minority people in a community, crime tends to be higher. She says anyone who said that back then was basically a racist. And she said that today, when people are discussing the issues of trans people who are very vulnerable, they're basically radicalising them. They're radicalising people online to basically target trans people and you are effectively no better than a white supremacist, basically. And, and, right. and you should keep your opinions to yourself, she said, at the Edinburgh Fringe. Well, I, I don't know much about Murray Black, but... I think without wanting to engage um, any defamatory uh, <laughs> positions, that is potentially a, a racist statement that she's made because um, the, the objections that a lot of people have um, to the idea that, that sex is irrelevant and that sex uh, segregated spaces are important uh, is one that is very much central to uh, large swathes of the British population who are of BAME uh, origin themselves and who adhere to doctrinal positions governed by their faith. Uh, that would include uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims, as well as Jews, and of course, many Christians um, and, and many black Christians. So um, when she says that these concerns are, are somehow the hallmarkers of racism, and that anybody who raises questions is a racist. <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of circular lunacy that we are inhabiting increasingly in this society, that what she's actually doing is saying that anyone who, because of their racial, ethnic, cultural, religious community background has concerns, is a racist. And that makes her a racist, doesn't it? I mean, what 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 to say? Is she does she mean Muslims when she says what she says when she talks about women's spaces, women's toilets? If she says, um, you know, there's nothing to fear if 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 a trans person uses a woman's toilet, if a trans identified woman uses a woman's toilet, there's nothing to fear. Is she speaking on behalf of Muslim women who simply cannot, as a matter of doctrine, um, accept that, and they certainly cannot accept it for their daughters? I mean. That's to put aside all of the secular arguments and all of the, um, you know, the various uh, other practical arguments that many people of all faiths and none may have about this issue. In, in particular, as, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the protection of young people from a, a highly confusing and disorienting ideology that is, in my view, designed to disorient, confuse and upset young people and render them vulnerable uh, to people with agendas that... Um, uh, they seek to impose on young children. But, but I mean, just to return to the racist point, uh, unless Mar Marie Black is willing to debate um, representatives of, of the Muslim community in, in Scotland and elsewhere, I, I think she's undermined her own argument rather embarrassingly. Yeah, and you, you've just hit on a very important point. Marie Black was speaking to 
an echo chamber effectively, not to be unkind, at the Edinburgh Fringe. And she was applauded when she said people who made intellectual arguments against extending trans rights were the same as those who claimed that non-white ethnic groups were inferior. She's not going to have it put to her as eloquently as you put it to me, that there is another argument. And Sally, you come in any time you want there, but can I just put this to you? Did she have a point when she said this? She said, um, she, she talked about how she talked about how um, this particular issue is being used to divide people. She says, and they, she doesn't say who they are, um, they're using this small community as a wedge issue to cause chaos and make people divide amongst themselves. Now, I, sadly, for the, for, for, you know, for, for the course of this conversation, I mean, we should have the other side here, but we don't. I agree with what, what Anna said, and I, I will agree undoubtedly with what you say, Sally, but nothing is black and white either. She makes a decent point when she says that there is a group of people seeking to use this issue as, to, you know, to foster a culture war, to further divide people in times when maybe we need to be a bit more, um, show a bit more togetherness. What do you reckon, Sally? Well, that's the thing. You know, we're not allowed to have a debate anymore without being called right wing or white supremacist. And that's what it boils down to. So if you listen to Mariana Spring, the BBC's disinformation correspondent, she anybody who deviates from narrative as being right wing or supremacist or having, uh, you know, as, as uh, what's it, hate thought and hate crimes. Tell you what I'm going to do. We're losing Sally there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Sally on another line there. And then um, just just bear with us a second. We're going to get Sally on another line. I'll end the call there. And uh, we'll we'll get her on another line because that line is very bad. Um, let, let's, let's bring her up on another line if we can get her on. I'm going to try the Skype route there. While, while we're trying to get Sally back, we, we're, we're, we still have um, Dr. Anna Sutfi on the line. Sally was making the point, Anna, that um, it has been reduced to name-calling and defamatory accusations of being members of a far-right group just for asking questions about whether it's suitable or not to talk about um, graphic descriptions of sex with children as young as nine. It's, it's difficult to navigate this territory, isn't it? I mean, I don't want Sally to lose that point, but I, I just want to come back to that 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 idea that um, the, that people raising concerns are, are causing chaos. That is rich. Uh, that is that is rich. I mean, if you if you if you say that people who are possessed of the conventional, um, I might I might add, common sense view that, that that the human race is is dimorphic and there are men and women, and that society reflects those differences in different ways, admittedly throughout history. But all societies do recognise uh, that men and women exist and are different, and that there are ways in which that is managed socially um, in the interests of both sexes, and sometimes against the interests of one or the other sex. In which case that sex kicks up a fuss and we get uh, reforms like we saw in the 19th century for, for, for the female franchise. Um, but the fact that women and men exist is, 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 a, is a cornerstone of how society organises itself. It's how children uh, understand the world as they're brought into the world. It's how they understand their relationships with, with their own family members. And it's how they navigate public spaces and behaviours. It's what gives them 
something in common with other children and what every individual has in common with other individuals is this understanding that we are human and this is what being human is. Now, if you come along and decide to smash that fairly uh, normative but quite stable and commonsensical worldview, if you decide to smash it up with a hammer and say no, 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 no. There's no such thing as male or female. Uh, and the, and the, 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 the things that you think um, that you've taken for granted um, since time immemorial are actually up for grabs and that, of course, girls have penises and, of course, men can give birth and, of course, men can menstruate and, of course, men understand menstrual cramps and, of course, women, um, you know, are, are comfortable to, to share changing facilities with men who have their, 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 their genitals hanging out and are, who may be masturbating or maybe flashing when there are children present. If you come around and say, this is all fine and you're not to, you're not to raise any, any eyebrows, is it not you that is causing chaos? And you have some explaining to do. To turn around and say it is, it is the, um, you know, the, the, the worldview of, of billions of people across the, across the planet and since time immemorial and, and their, their um, insistence on, on adhering to a worldview without which it becomes very difficult to organize societies effectively. Uh, to accuse them of causing chaos seems, well, as I say, rich. It's blatantly, <laughs> it's blatantly false, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, I, I think we, we, we do have Sally. Sally is back in the room. Welcome back, Sally. So... I think because it was a bad line, wasn't it? It was a bad line. Yeah, I don't know if you've got internet issues where you are, but we'll we'll, we'll persevere as best as we can, Sally, because you, you're just kind of coming in and out just a little bit there. If um, if what I might do, if if all else fails, is is call you the old fashioned way and call the uh, the mobile, but we'll persevere um w w with it there. Um, what uh, you wanted to talk about intellectual property, Sally? Now I know we're jumping around a few issues here. We're we're, we're talking about, um, we're, we're talking about queer theory, and we're also talking about materials being shown to children in sex education classes. So we're kind of moving from one uh, to the other. But but you wanted to talk a bit about um, schools providing materials to kids. Um, you mentioned in your article. I mean, God, it's hard to even believe I'm saying this out loud. But that nine-year-old kids were shown images and were given text about masturbation and mutual masturbation. We know this, this, this emerged in, in June and that when some parents asked to be shown these materials in some parts of the country, not everywhere, um, they were told, well, we, we're, we're getting this stuff from a third party. We're bringing it in from a third party and we can't share it because we might be infringing on, on, on copyright, Sally. This, is, this sounds a bit crazy to me. Well, this, yeah, this is the thing. So I thought I would check this out with Stonewall, who were one of the providers of the lessons that um, are taught in schools. And they say that that wasn't they said that wasn't true, that um, all the lessons are available on their website. So parents can check. But there was a, a story. I don't know if, if Anna's mentioned this Um I, I met Anna at the House of Commons with Andrew Bridgen and Lawrence Fox when they were um, launching the Reclaim Education initiative. And there was somebody there who told a story about a five-year-old in Ireland who was, for homework, was asked to draw an erect penis and scrotum. Yeah. Anna. And... 
I mean, really, you know, and somebody else made the, the comment that, look, this is going to be really difficult for child abuse cases because paedophiles can then claim, uh, well, no, they didn't see my erect penis. Uh, you know, they saw, you know, they know that what an erect penis looks like because they've been taught it at school. So all this age inappropriate education around sex, which Anna so rightly mad about, um, you know, is is making our children incredibly vulnerable. And I don't know about you, but if somebody had told me at nine that I could have had anal sex or might have to give somebody a blowjob, I'd have never, ever gone near a man, I don't think. Can I, can, just Anna, just we, before you come back in on that, yes, no, yeah. no, no, I, no, I really want to hear from both. I, I don't want to be involved in this at all. I'm happy for the two of you to talk because you've done the work on this. But Anna, I wanted to ask, right, what, I agree with Sally. If somebody had said to, to me when I was nine, I mean, I'm 48 now, I mean, I would have been mortified, right? Of course I would have been. I've heard the argument made from the other side that it's, things are a lot different to, when, to, to how they were when we were nine. And like it or lump it, children are exposed to things online, whether we, parental controls aside, that kids are seeing things now that we never saw because of the internet, because of applications on phones and, and whatnot. And therefore, we need to intervene earlier, Anna. This is one of the claims made. And just before Anna comes back in on that, if you're just joining the programme, by the way, um, Dr. Anna Sutfi is on the line. She's a human rights lawyer and she heads up legal. She's the head of legal for the Bad Law Project. And the Bad Law Project and the Reclaim Party um, are looking into holding um, schools accountable legally to take cases against schools for introducing these notions to children as young as four, five and six. And we've also got Sally Beck on the line, uh, who's a friend of ours as well. Sally's been on the programme many times. She's a journalist, uh, very, very well, well-respected journalist, written for the Conservative Woman on this issue this week. So Anna, things are different yeah. now than they were when we were nine. Go ahead. Well, that's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, things are different now. I mean, that is a... <laughs> The question I would ask is, what does that position facilitate? When you say, oh, uh, it's very important for us to intervene because the world being what it is, children are exposed to X, Y and Z. What is the underlying assumption there? Because it's all very well to take that at face value and say, right, well, we'll work from that then, that the school has this uh, you know, role to play, which is driven uh, by actors who have um, authority over the school, whether that be the educational authorities or the educational consultants that advise the schools, um, supposedly in keeping with the law. But, but this assumption that they have the authority to determine what is necessary for a child to know and what a child must be exposed to in order to cope with the terrible world out there uh, leaves one elephant in the room missing, which is the parents. And of course, you know, children have always been potentially exposed to horrors. The internet wasn't the first thing uh, in the world to, to threaten children. I mean, we had children working up chimneys and down mines, for God's sake, and that was only abolished in, I believe, 1900 or so. And, and thank goodness it was. And we may need um, a Child Labour Act uh, equivalent in order to, to grapple with what's happening in our schools in order to protect children from harm. But the idea that 
children have never been at harm or at risk of harm um, is a nonsense. That the internet is just one variation on a theme of many harms that children can be exposed to. But of course, children have always had protective structures around them. Now, you, you will be led to believe, I think, with the ethos of PSHE, and I've researched its origins from the 1960s in the United States with something called the whole child approach. And I detail that history in our report, the Reclaim Education report on PSHE, which I recommend your readers have a look at. If you look at the whole child approach, that was developed with the specific intention of providing support structures for children who clearly came from very dysfunctional families indeed, or were seen to be neglected in, in unacceptable ways, coming to school unattended to, dirty, not washed, not fed, uh, perhaps at risk of abuse, whether that be violence or sexual violence. And so the whole child approach was like was based on the premise that for children like that, there needs to be some sort of support structures in place, which the school can theoretically provide. Um, and perhaps with the existence of, um, with, the, with the collaboration of external stakeholders, schools and stakeholders can collaborate to find out the best ways to support such children. But those children were considered dysfunctional. What's happened in the 21st century is the dysfunctional child is taken as the paradigmatic child, the normal child. And the, the child that is, 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 is protected, looked after, not neglected, not abused, um, mentored, nurtured, not just by their parents, but perhaps by other adults in their, in their extended family network and by family friends and grandparents. Um, this, this is all disregarded and it is the school, the school, the school and the state, the state, the state, and then whatever expert agencies um, putting themselves in the position of the state who will determine uh, what a child should be exposed to and what a child should not be. So I think we have to challenge, you know, this this very easy narrative of, oh, you know, things are so bad because of the internet. Everybody's watching pornography. Chil children are not protected from pornography by their stupid parents. Therefore, uh, we will show them pornography at school this is a nonsense and i would ask all of the re uh, listeners on your on your show to your show to to look at the sexual offences act 2003 and pay particular attention to uh, sections 8 11 and 12 of the sexual offences act 2003 and ask yourselves is there a possibility that non-child, non-contact child sex abuse, which is criminal under the Sexual Offences Act 2003, is not potentially being um, uh, conducted on school premises in the guise of relationship, sex and health education. Um, and if so, what are we going to do about it? Because I can tell you, I would bet all the money I do not have that no third sector provider, no educational consultant considered for a second, the 2003 Act, when they were designing their PSHE materials. And I think that is an oversight that will come back to bite them. And uh, they're going to have to do some explaining as to how, you know, uh, they are solving the problem of a porn-saturated society or a sexually promiscuous society or a sexually uh, predatory society by giving younger and younger and younger children more porn, more sexual, um, graphic sexual um, uh, tips, and also 
uh, increasingly encouraging children in the classroom to participate in enactments of those um, graphic sex acts to relive the experiences so that the teacher or the or the expert is vicariously enjoying um, the fact that a very young naive person is having to venture into sexually uncomfortable terrain which for many many insecure and inadequate adults and criminal adults is a massive turn on and this needs to be addressed and they're going to have to have explanations for how they can justify this and ultimately if we want further explanation of why this is happening uh, unfortunately I, I must say having looked at all the evidence that there is clearly an intention by these um, third party uh, organizations to erase the possibility for anybody, any responsible adult in our society to raise the question of whether something is age inappropriate. And the only legal consequence of that can be over time is that any distinctions in age are abolished. And we find ourselves in a world where there is technically no distinction in law between a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old, and a 25-year-old. And I'm afraid that takes us right back to 19th century industrial England, where children were sent down mines, sent up chimneys, sexually exploited on the street, um, and and prostituted across across the world. It reminds so me, Anna, it, it, it reminds me of, of, of reading about the paedophile information exchange in the 70s and 80s. People that were looking at, you know, lowering the age of consent to like very, very young, I think 11 or, or 12. Um, you're listening to Dr. Anna Sutphi. She's the head of legal at the Bad Law Project. I'm bringing Sally back in. Sally Beck's a terrific writer, um, freelance journalist, and has written about this for the conservative woman. I'll obviously put all of these links on the podcast notes a little bit later on. And as, as Anna just said there, the Bad Law Project is currently having consultations with legal specialists, criminal legal specialists, to see whether the materials being used meet the definition of non-contact child sex abuse and whether some of these lessons or these lessons might be criminal. And Sally, your article is excellent. It's, it's kind of, uh, not to be dramatic about it, I, I mean it's chill, chilling as well because you also detail in the article like some of the potential harms. And Lawrence Fox, who's been on this programme in the past, uh, heading up the Reclaim Party, um, he kind of saw one of these potential harms up close and personal in an interaction he had with his son, didn't he, Sally? Yeah, and that was extraordinary. So he went to give his son a hug goodnight and his son turned to him and said, you have to ask my permission if you want to hug me. And, you know, Lawrence was obviously thinking, what? And uh, said, well, how, why are you saying that? Who told you that? And he said that his son said he'd learned that in PSHE. And Lawrence rightly went into the school and got sight of what was being taught to his son. And he was shocked to see that alongside um, genital mutilation, which, you know, obviously should be taught to children as this should not be happening. Uh, but it, they were, children were also being taught that they could be born in the wrong body. And I've spoken to a few psychiatrists about this. And the, the consensus amongst the psychiatrists I've spoken to seems to be that if children have a parent, either a mum or a dad, who they really find very difficult, they 
you know, they don't have a good relationship with them, they will automatically gravitate towards the parents. So, for example, if you're a boy and you've got a very aggressive dad who's very scary, you might identify more with your mum and you might wish for a while that you could be a mum, that you could be a woman. But through therapy, you know, if it's therapy, the therapists tell me that what normally happens is that after a few months, um, these children who are having these confusing thoughts then end up sorting themselves out and, you know, months later will go on to have a girlfriend. So none of this and, and the whole thing that um, there has to not, there doesn't need to be a medical diagnosis. So anybody can just walk into school and say, I identify as a, as a girl. You can say that if you're a boy and has to take you seriously. There's no discussion about why are you identifying as a boy? Why? There's no getting to the bottom of what's going on. And it may be like um, I mentioned in my article, a woman living as a man, Buck Angel. And he is. Sally is breaking up again there. I'm just going to clear out the call and, and come back. Sally's overseas and I don't think her internet connection is is uh, is, is, is marvellous at the moment, uh, sadly. Um, Anna, I, I, I'm surprised that um, very few teachers have emerged and said, listen, I, I can't possibly do this because I might have some exposure legally. Are you surprised at that? Well, as I said, I think it hasn't crossed. I mean, look, maybe other people have had this idea. I don't want to. I don't want to take credit for it, but I, I believe that the the, the possible um, uh, threshold that is set down in the uh, Sexual Offences Act 2003 and its applicability to RSH, RSE, and PSHE, I don't think that has been considered by. Uh, to my knowledge, and anybody except the Bad Law Project, we 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 have identified this as an issue, um, but it's clear to me that that hasn't been something that's been given to teachers as a potential area for them to have training or yeah. um, you know, any kind of um, you know legal le legal assistance with, um, so that they know that what they're doing is 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 uh, well within the law. Um, so I think that there's general ignorance about, I think that ideology has driven pract teaching practice so rapidly and so violently, so aggressively. And it's done so, of course, as, as it always does with the noble cause of human rights flying right. um, so, above so, itself. So sorry to you can't question it because it's human rights after all. Sorry to interrupt you there. So, so yeah, I get that. So you're saying that the ideology um, is, is strong um, to the point where critical thinking skills kind of evaporate because I get what you're saying and I'm not arguing with you but I, I, I still think common sense must say to some of these teachers head teachers particularly I can't show that to a child of, of nine you know I hear what well, you I say I think a lot. I mean, I think there's probably more teachers than than we know about who are deeply uncomfortable with what's going on and object to it, which also engages the law, by the way, because you 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 know we have we do have uh, case law on compelled speech, and you know it is technically against the law to force somebody to adopt a position politically that they don't agree with. Um, of course, that has been very 
it's it's very impoverished case law. We really only have one uh, Supreme Court decision, but nonetheless, it's there. It's not quite as established as as in the United States, where the First Amendment has actually um, a doctrine on compelled speech that, that that has plenty of case law to back it up. But in this country, compelled speech is a still relatively untested area. It's probably going to become more tested as we go further into this into this quagmire. But I think a lot of teachers are concerned, and I suspect that many schools. Um, you know, obviously, I, I paint a picture that's bleak of, of schools that are succumbing one by one to this horrific ideology, and that is a bleak picture. But I mean, on the positive side, and I, and I base this on anecdotal um, evidence that I've had in consultation with, with teachers and parents, um, there are schools where there is a very dim view taken of all this, and steps are taken to make sure that it doesn't get out of control and that the bare minimum is taught uh, in, a, in a respectful way to all these different communities that attend, for example, multicultural schools and that you know parent parental sensibilities are taken on board and uh, there is some sort of dialogue and if a, if a parent does object then usually the, 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 there is a, a tolerant attitude to that so I think that is probably um, a, a much uh, more realistic picture of the United Kingdom at this stage. However, we also do know that there are horrendous things going on in schools and I suspect the more elite schools tend to be the worst. Um, and, uh, Why do you say that, Anna? Why do you say the elite schools might be the worst? I, I think that white middle class children are particularly vulnerable to gender ideology as an identity because it gives them something um, which which brings them into this um, uh, identity world that they've been told, you know, if you don't have a, a special identity, particularly an oppressed identity, one that, that people find hard to understand or that has a history of being, you know, downtrodden and and you have this noble cause and this special identity and you, you get to be an individual, it's almost like a rite of passage for some. I know in the United States, um, a lot of parents complain about the, the, the way in which the, the category of non-binary is, is becoming a, a, a middle-class rite of passage for boys and girls. And it's a way in which, if, especially if they're white and, and well-off, um, they get to have their own Black Lives Matter and they get to have their own, um, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, political um, football that they can kick around and it, and it gives them meaning and purpose and and it, it's possible that children from uh, BAME backgrounds if we if we want to use that expression which I dislike but let's say children from say South Asian backgrounds in the UK or, or uh, uh, Caribbean backgrounds in the UK do they do they necessarily need uh, an, an extra identity to, to, to sort of throw at the system they've already got their own um, their own baggage and their own issues and their own community issues and their own um, yeah. you know, political yeah. so they don't really need anything else but for, for, for privileged white middle class kids I suspect that this is a very uh, it's, it's a sort of cry for help really please look at me and see me as valuable I'm valuable too, I matter too that that, that may not be the right explanation No but, but it, it, it makes a little bit of sense I, we've got Sally, it makes more than a little bit of sense, sorry I didn't mean to be patronising you I'm not patronising no. you at all It. Um, I've heard people come on this programme and talk about lived experience replacing reality um, you know and lived experience being a barrier to any open discussion about what somebody might be going through. Sally, I've just said two Hail Marys, an Our Father and a Glory Be to the Father with my <laughs> Catholic upbringing. Is that you're on a secure line now because this is too blooming important. I know you've been listening to uh, Dr. Anna Sutfi there and I know you want to 
to join in. Do you go along with that, that um, it might be more prevalent in, you know, uh, better off white areas or schools? What do you think? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. I think that the middle classes are very keen to oblige, aren't they? Uh, you know, the, they, the, it's the middle class who will be the ones who are saying we should take this seriously. Um, you know, I know that Jane wants to identify as a cat this week, so you know, let's make sure we give her a source of milk when she comes to play. And all this, I think the middle classes are going to take this more seriously. I don't think the upper class as well, and I don't think the working class will. I really, I really don't. It's the middle classes who are accommodating. And I ask you, Sally, on something I asked Anna there while we were reconnecting. Well, you heard Anna talk on this already. You know, this... Um, mm. The, the fact that teachers, I used to work with um, um, 10, 11 and 12 year old boys 20 years ago as a, as a soccer coach. And um, I was very, if I can say, cognizant at the time, especially because of the history of child abuse in Ireland, um, the clerical child abuse and, and what have you. I was very, very conscious of being very careful. You know, I was in my 20s then, very, very careful at discussions I might have around the, the, the lads. And when we went away on trips abroad to watch football in England, very careful to make sure that everything was done to make sure those kids were protected and that the adults and all that weren't, um, you know, put into a, any situations where they might ever be accused of anything. And, and I said to Anna, and Anna's talked about this already, I, I'm genuinely stunned that teachers and teaching teaching unions haven't said, hang on a second now, no, no way, absolutely no way should we be speaking about these issues to children as young as that. Well, what do you think of that? I think you're right. I mean, when you're, you, you, you ask your parents or your friends if you can't ask your parents, but it's not the 1970s. So we should be able to have, kids should be able to have conversations with their parents. A five-year-old, for example, or maybe even younger than that, will want to know where babies come from. You know, there's some great books. There's a, an author called Babette Cole who explains where babies come from in a brilliant way for children so that, you know, parents can read that book with their kids. And, yep, babies now know that, um, you know, sperm have to meet an egg. But it's it's done in a it's done in a way that, a child of that age can understand. And then really, I suppose you are sort of 10, 11, 12, maybe, when you start to hear more about sex. Although I know that we all wanted to have boyfriends in primary school, but, you know, we'd have been utterly terrified if uh, that boyfriend has started talking to us about blowjobs and anal sex. We just, it would just have been horrendous. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, that the Anna made a really good point early on that we're flipping everything on its head. So everything is now being tailored towards that child who doesn't have a parent who can give them the right information or who doesn't want to give them the information. Parents are no longer trusted. She made a really good point in her speech. She said um, that 
uh, yeah, you tell us at school about your sexual thoughts. Don't tell your parents. Don't trust them. Trust us. Trust us with your innermost thoughts. Now, we know what kids like in school. You know, imagine talking about fantasies in front of all your classmates and what that's going to be like in the playground afterwards. Imagine if, as a seven-year-old, you've just been taught about masturbation. What are you going to be doing behind the climbing frame when the teachers aren't looking? You're going to be seeing how far your spunk goes. You'll be having sunk wars. And, you know, sorry to be crude, but this is what's going to happen in the playground if this carries on. I mean, that, I mean that's a, quite a picture you've painted there. I mean, could it not? <laughs> I mean, could it could it not go the other way where it um, basically turns children into introverts? Again, I I can't remember being that age, but I know because I was a pretty gangly, awkward kid. Um, you know, tall kid, uh, tall and skinny, lanky. I had issues anyway with that. I think it would have absolutely ruined me to be hearing that sort of stuff and to be talking about these things. I don't know if I'd be, you know, in the playground and, you know, comparing. I'm not going to get into it, but, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting well, idea, yeah. If I can jump in there, just... I think, just... I think as, as, a, as a child, I wanted my questions to be answered. And to be honest, they weren't answered satisfactorily. You know, when I asked, how are babies made? How does the babies get in mummy's tummies? No one, I was at Catholic convent um, for my primary school and a Church of England secondary school. And obviously there was no conversation at primary school about sex at all. You know, we were taught by nuns and I think I nearly got expelled for drawing one of the nuns kissing the headmaster. Um, but, you know, so we, we were kind of, we were curious. We did want to be given honest answers, but when we asked the question, I think it would have been very, very uncomfortable if we'd have had lessons about it. Yeah. Anna, you were going to come in there. Well, it's such a difficult subject, and, and, it, and we're, we're only really starting to have the conversation now, I think, as a, as a, as a country, let's say. Um, but we tend to talk about, the, especially with, in relation to the sex stuff, that you know, we, we're quite shocked with some of the exposés that have been um, made recently with, with, with regards to, say, masturbation being taught in schools to children as young as nine. There was that expose in the mail um, a few months ago. And then, uh, you know, we hear all these stories about, you know, oral sex and an erect penis here and, uh, you know, children being instructed to make their own dental dams out of condoms. And, and you think, oh, it's all just hyperbolic. Then you look at one particular set of materials that I looked at was very useful because it was a whole comprehensive um, set of materials designed by one uh, education authority that took you from age five right up to ages 16 to 17. So you had all the materials that this particular authority thought we were, were suitable uh, for each um, key stage each year. And so you could get a sense of how the age groups were being targeted by the materials. And what I think gets lost in these conversations is that this isn't just somebody marching into a school and going, hey, kids, blowjobs, boo, and then scaring them. And then they all kind of look at each other mortified and some might be affected negatively, some might be indifferent, whatever. It's not like that. 
the, the, the educational materials are a program and they have the development of the child in mind and they present sometimes quite convincingly that they are, they are setting something out at an age appropriate level and then you see when you move to the next year how the child has been set up for example, so that they can cope with what is coming next. But you don't realize that when you're reading, for example, the, 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 the age five-year-old five materials. You don't necessarily see right. what's coming at age six, and then you look back at the age five and say, oh, I see what they did there. So, for example, there might be a little game that's played where children have to point to their nose, and then they have to point to their ears, and then they have to point to their vulvas or they have to point to their penis. And I mean, this will be presented as, you know, learning the parts of the body and in an, in an enlightened society, it's nothing shameful if a, if, a, if a little boy knows where his penis is and a little girl knows where her vulva is, although I think the, the use of the word vulva is very, very odd. Um, but then once you get to the next year, you see that the teacher is introducing the idea that some girls have penises and some boys have vulvas. So, of course, the, the child couldn't possibly cope with that until they established comfortably the idea of a penis and a vulva. But then the next uh, round of, of games is to completely floor the child by undermining everything they've just learned. So even if you think it's age appropriate, which I think is debatable because we have, again, to decide whether something... It, it, whether the child is ready for that particular lesson in their own time. I mean, these things are better decided in the home very often just because children are very, very different. And they're, some are inquisitive, some are shy, some are, you know, likely to be sexually adventurous at the ages of 14 or 15, but others may not be sexually adventurous into their late 20s. And they never get a look in as far as these PSHE materials are concerned because the PSH materials work on the assumption that everybody's going to be a grubby street prostitute by the age of, of, of yeah. seven. Yeah. Um, but 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 the, but what I wanted to say is, if you look at the materials over the long durée, from 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 the young age to the to the to the older age groups, you can see that actually there is a there is a certain amount of preparation, careful preparation, in setting the child up for for um, uh, uh, talking about things and and assuming that certain things are okay, and then blasting them with fresh pieces of information which they are now ready to receive because they've learned the first stages now that sounds like that grooming is, Anna that that sounds it, very much like grooming to me that's it, the word that would come to mind it is and of course we have to have the debate about who's grooming and why what's it for what it what is it for what's it all for no one ever asks it's just assumed to be necessary because as I say um, an, an African-American college in the 1970s uh, in in New York State was was deemed to be a good site to experiment with attitudes to teaching that took into account uh, the fact that some some children might come from very dysfunctional broken homes and and that legacy has been developed into an international program of, of relationships and sex education that now is being imposed on all children and all parents and all families uh, by mandate, by state mandate. Um, and, you know, this is where our issue lies, that we don't, we don't know, we, we, we don't know really what the impact of this is going to be on future generations, because this is really the first time 
in 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 modern history that such a, a program has been whole cloth imposed and so quickly on it. Can can I just bring Sally back in because we've yep. got about four minutes left on this and uh, Sally just li- listening to Anna describe that you know we, we don't know what's going to happen. Look, you've been on your travels and I know you're you're writing about this as it's happening in the UK and maybe Ireland. But what what have your experiences been in terms of looking into what's happening where you are? I mean, surely this is not... I mean, is it unique, Sally, to the UK and to the United States? Absolutely. And, um, is it? Wow. Know, so I've, I've, I've travelled a lot in India. I'm uh, currently in Africa. Um, I've travelled... I've been in Muslim India and I'm in Muslim Africa. And... The thought of number is that all the men are very natural with children, with babies. There's no kind of barrier. They don't worry about picking them up and playing with them and bouncing them on their knee. And, you know, it's very, very natural. And it's a joy to see. It's a really a joy to see how, how men connect with children. And I'm not saying that child abuse doesn't go on in Africa and doesn't go on in India. I'm sure it does. But um, from what I've seen, there are very natural relationships. They don't understand. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that film, What is a Woman? But um, there's a, a brilliant moment in it when he goes to see the Maasai to explain mm. to the Maasai that yes. women can have a penis and that men can have a vagina and they cannot, cannot take that on board. And I'm around, you know, men here all the time. They're very respectful towards me as a woman. Um, there's not much sign of toxic ma- masculinity that, that I see. I have you know, very open and honest conversations with everybody of all different ages um, about, you know, what's going on in the West. And they're utterly horrified. In fact, the other day we were having this conversation and we walked out of the cafe. I was having it with um, a local uh, photographer who's about 28. And he just couldn't take on board that I said, you know, you, if you go to the West, you, you'll see men dressed in women's clothing. You couldn't take it on board. Lo and behold, we walked out and we saw a tourist about six foot two, about 18 stone, male wearing a skirt. Right. And we just looked at each other and he was going, OK, you know, now I now I believe you. But it's just. Unfathomable. So it's unique really. to to here and to the United States. We'll give the last word to um, Dr. Anna Sutfi for today. We've got two minutes and and no more. Sally writes obviously for uh, the Conservative Woman. Go to conservativewoman.co.uk. I will obviously put the link to the article on there. Now the Bad Law Project. It's badlawproject.com to look at the cases, um, to see what's what, what's happening and what will happen, and to learn more about Anna and, um, and what they're doing, and the Reclaim Party, to try and stop this, and to protect children, go to badlawproject.com. But I'll give you the final word, Anna. It's been great to have both of you on today. Um, it's a horrible thing to be discussing, really, knowing that it's going on. But I suppose, thank God, or thank heavens, that uh, somebody is making inroads into uncovering it and, and maybe putting in a, a stop to it. A final word to you, Anna, and, and thanks again. 
My final word is this. Uh, you're going to hear and your listeners are going to hear a lot of discussion about um, what the law says and how uh, human rights issues um, are to be respected and inclusion is really important. And we've got to understand that, you know, there are all of these things that mean that we must just accept what is happening in our schools. That that that, is, that level of discourse is going to become more and more shrill. Uh, and and the, the Murray Black um, comments that we started with refer, reflect the sort of society we live in where we say, um, nothing to see here, all is good, uh, and if you object, you're, you're, a, you're, you're, you're literally Hitler. But what I, would, uh, what I would end with is that the, the number of parents that have reached out to me in the last three or four weeks in utter distress, and not just in the UK, but in Ireland, the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and they all have the same kinds of stories, as we would say in law, similar on the facts. There is a problem, and if it isn't addressed, and if it, if it isn't addressed sensibly and civilly, and through debate and public debate that is conducted, you know, in a civil manner, and if it isn't honest, and if these parents' concerns are not addressed, there is going to be upheaval, the like of which the United Kingdom, at least, has never seen. So we can think that it's doomsday because of the climate, and we can think it's doomsday because of COVID, and we can think it's doomsday because of all these other horrors that are thrown at us every five seconds. But I'm telling you this, the parental movement is growing, and it's going to be an earthquake that shatters all of the structures of power that we have seen build up over the last few decades. So you better you better be ready for it. That's how I would end. Thanks to both of you. Sally, thanks for being such a sport through the uh, connection issues, but uh, I'm glad we were able to hear um, 99% um, of you this evening. Great article for conservativewoman.co.uk. Yeah, thanks for that. And Dr. Anna Sudfi, thanks for your time today. Bad Law project.com the door is always open to both of you uh keep fighting the good fight and thanks for your time today bye for now thanks Richie. thank you so much very 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 great to have you on thanks very much indeed dr anna sutri and sally beck live on uh wednesday's richie allen show and, and look, look you, you'll see on the website if you go to the website and on the comments through the app we must have had several hundred comments come through um pretty much what you're telling me the uh um uh, Anna and Sally were were answering these points and discussing these points in any case. Uh, so uh, sorry I didn't get much of a chance to, to kind of stop and to, to read those comments, but you'll understand why. Uh, thanks again. Back uh, Thanks to Tony Gosling for his um, uh, time earlier on too. Back with you tomorrow, Thursday at 5 o'clock UK time for Thursday's programme. You enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Until then, it's bye from me. Yeah.